now bring you the Making Much of Jesus podcast featuring the late Dr. Jack Hudson, the founding pastor of the Northside Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And now today's edition of the Making Much of Jesus podcast. tonight let's turn if you will to the gospel of matthew chapter number eight i want to bring you a message tonight i'm calling it very simply and perhaps even crudely hog killing revival hog killing revival i'm gonna read a verse of scripture or passage of scripture tonight i'll make my application from this scripture later but we'll read it and then you'll see why i feel the lord laid this title on my heart the gospel of matthew chapter number eight and verse 28 That's page 1006 if you have your Schofield Bibles. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 8, and we begin reading at verse number 28. And when he was come to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, that is, out of the cemetery, exceedingly fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before our time? You see, demons know they have a time. They know. And there was a good way, and they were a good way off from them, a herd of many swine, that is, hogs, feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. You see, demons are disembodied spirits. That is, they have no bodies. And to them, they simply cannot exist without a body. And so they said, well, if you don't let us stay in this person, if we can't possess these people, then we want you to cast us into the herd of the hog. Put us into the hogs over there. 32. And he said unto them, go, and when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine, and behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the water. In other words, they were drowned. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. You see, they had a hog-killing revival. And the people said, we don't want you around here. We don't want you. I want you to think on that as we develop a message. First, let's bow our heads. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to understand the word of God. Pray that you'd keep it centered now. Don't let it wander or veer to one way or the other, but let it stay right in the middle that we may all grasp and understand the truth. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I wonder tonight if I'd ask, and I'm not, and so I'm not, I may ask it, but I'm not going to ask you to lift your hands or make any indication. How many of you would really like to see a great revival? And I'm sure that most hands would go up. But I wonder how many of you really know what a revival is. I wonder if we even know how to pray. The Bible says we know not how to pray as we should. And I wonder if we know what a revival really is. I wonder if we know what it would do. I wonder if we, most of us, honestly, before God, really and truly want revival. Now, we might like to see maybe more members, like to see a bigger offering, like to see more people and some things like that. But that's not necessarily revival. And I think before we can pray for revival, we must understand what it really is. I want you to to see and remember, you see, primarily the word revival is an Old Testament word. Remember what the psalmist says? Oh, wilt thou not revive us again? 
And again, Lord, when would I send revival? Revival is a word in the Old Testament primarily. Now, the prefix re means uh, to replace or to put back. We say we're going to rebuild. Now, if you're going to rebuild something, it means you've had to build something to start with. Maybe it's in a bad state of repairs, so you're going to rebuild it. If you say we're going to remodel something, it means something that's already been modeled already, and so you're going to remodel it, you see. And so you could go on down the line. If you're going to replenish something, it means it's already had plenty in there, and you're going to replenish, which means re-put back plenty as it was at the beginning, you see. And so the word, it, it, I remember reading one time where a great black preacher said, the trouble with some of you folks, the reason you can't get revived is you ain't never been vived yet. And brother, that's exactly right. And the problem with most people in America today, they're praying for revival and they don't know what it is and they can't be revived until first of all, you get vived, until you get psyched up, until you get born again, until you really get in fellowship with the Lord. You can, a lot of people say, I think I ought to rededicate my life. I don't think that's what they need half as badly as they need to dedicate their lives to start with. You can't rededicate your life. And first of all, you've honestly, sincerely under God dedicated your life to the Lord. And so revival is an Old Testament word, primarily, though we use it and use it well. The word in the New Testament is repent, repent. Now we're studying the book of the Revelation, and I, I'm conscious again as I study through. Of the seven churches, there are five of them, God tells them they need repentance. God didn't tell one of the seven churches they needed revival. God said you need repentance. And the Bible seems to indicate in the Old Testament word revival was used. In the New Testament, there's a newer word, a deeper word, a more meaningful word. It's the word repent. I believe it any time we hang a sign out or put an ad in the paper and it says Northside Baptist Church, revival. It's an indication. It's beginning on the assumption that, brother, that we're dead, that we need a spiritual tune-up, that there's something wrong with the church. And sometimes people get it confused and the word revival is synonymous with evangelism. They're entirely unrelated. But one of them has to do entirely with the born again Christian. Revival, you can only revive that something that's been alive to start with. Now the Bible never says that unsaved people are alive and kind of backslid them. They said they're dead in trespasses and sin. And evangelism, an evangelistic thrust is to get people born again. And brother, when you say revival, if you know what it means, it means, Lord, we're not talking about evangelism. We're not talking about going out here and getting people saved necessarily. What we're praying, Lord, revival is, oh God, will thou not revive thy people? That's who need revival. God's people, God's people. You'll never get the world right until you get the church right. You'll never get sinners right until you get saints right. And you'll never go after sinners until you get right in your own heart. Heart, and these are the things we need to understand. You know, there's some dangers in our day, and these are the dangers that we're facing all around us. The devil is so subtle. First of all, he gets us if we do get saved, and if he knows where he's lost, we know we're born again. And then the first thing he tries to do is to deceive us, is to trick us into believing certain things. Now, not necessarily uh, error, but uh, you see, the devil is a counterfeiter. I don't believe the devil wants everybody to be in beer joints and everybody to be drunk. I don't believe that. He's too much of a master counterfeiter. The counterfeiter, it is, tries to imitate, tries to make as near like the real thing as possible to such a degree that people will accept it. Isn't that what to do with counterfeit money? 
Isn't that what to do with counterfeit goods? They make it and manufacture it as near like the real thing as they can and try to get people to take it in place of the real thing. Now, one of the reasons that counterfeit can continue is because it's always cheaper than the real thing. And beloved, we're living in the age of the counterfeit today. And I'll tell you, we need to wake up to it. And revival is what we need. You see, there's a revival of, of religious interest today. Have you noticed it? People are thinking, my, things are so good, things are happening. We've got an interest, a wave of revival in religion, they're saying. We see fellows come out. Uh, writing the books, the paraphrase of the book of the Revelation, a man called Hal Lindsey and uh, Salem Kerbin, and they take the paraphrase of the book of the Revelation, and they come out as if this is some great revelation from heaven, and they're selling hundreds of thousands, yea, even millions of copies of their paraphrase of the book of the Revelation. And people are going down the drain following all this teaching and following these men rather than following the Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching. I'll tell you one of the reasons why there's nothing that bites in it. There's nothing that takes away your joy. There's nothing that'll change your standard of living in them. There's nothing about the authors that indicate any change of living. Our standard of conduct is different than the world. Have you seen a picture of Hal Lindsey? Among other things, he's got hair down, looks like a woman, got a beard, dresses like a hippie to start with. Nothing in his life indicates that he's been with Jesus Christ. Nothing in his life that acts to treats that he's been born again of the spirit of the living God. Salem Kerbin uh, wrote a letter, tried to get people to join by, by a statement, uh, join a church by, by, by writing a letter, a mail-order church, I'll have you to know. I'm trying to say this is the wave of religious interest and people are reading books like this today. I see them on the news counter now, books by these people. But beloved, I want you to know that is not revival. We're singing people, seeing people today who one hour ago were singing in a nightclub and now they come to some meeting and they stand there with a great big smile on their face and they sing, uh, I've touched the hand of the man who held the stars or something of that sort. And everybody says, oh, isn't that wonderful? He sure is religious. One of them is named Pat Boone. Mr. Pat Boone. He'll sing in any nightclub in the world and then come and people go over there and say, oh, he's so religious. Well, that's about what he is, to my opinion. I'm talking about names, I'm talking about people, and I'm trying to get you to see there's a wave in religion today, but not the right kind that's bringing revival. You show me where any of these men have been and people have gotten right with God and hearts have been changed and sin have been a hog-killing revival. There hasn't been. Everybody just feels a little better for two or three days, and especially after they buy their books and their records and whatever they've got to sell. It reminds me of, of, of religious Kmart sometimes, the way they set up these things and do business. Beloved today, we've even got, you know, then we've got the, you know, the, the gospel rock crowd, you know, of the Blackwood brothers and the, 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 all the other kind, the Andrew brothers and every kind of other thing you can think of today. And they go in there, stand there and shake and rattle and roll and they sing the rock and the roll and they, they put microphones up there that's no different whatsoever than the rock and roll singer and they turn it up so loud, the pews vibrate and they sing something about religion. And everybody knows how ungodly lives that 95% of them live. And if you don't think I'm telling the truth, you get one of them to tell you, they'll tell you on them, brother. Get one of them saved and born again, and they'll tell you it'll be like Watergate when they tell you the ungodly lives that they live. And beloved, I'm trying to say to you, we have a wave of religion today. 
But the problem is it's not changing anybody's lives. Nobody's getting born again. Nobody's turning over a new leaf. Nobody's getting rid of sin in their life. Nobody's cleaning out their house. Nobody's cleaning out their mind. Nobody's going out and doing great things for God as a result of all this influence. It's nothing more than religious fanaticism in many things. Jimmy Carter now, for example. I'm just saying one. I could say them all. They're all on religion now. It's being born again. It's all these other things. And beloved, I have a question in my mind where a born-again believer would sit down with an interviewer from Playboy magazine and give him an interview if he has been truly born of the Spirit of God. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. The Bible says, touch not the unclean thing. The Bible says we're to take a stand against wickedness. Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ would have allowed Playboy magazine to interview him and then put it in there along with the naked women, the licentious lit reading material? No, I don't believe so. I do not believe the Lord Jesus would have done it. Now, I'm not putting down Jimmy Carter. I'm talking about, I'm trying to get you to see there is a wave of religious interest in America today, but it is not revival. It's something that the devil wants you to look at and to so that you'll ease yourself on in your sin and your complacency and your criticism and your backbiting. And he's saying, look at there, everything's all right. Tell you another thing. This so-called wave of mass evangelism today. I said this morning in my Sunday school class, and I think it's worth repeating. One of the hardest things in the world to do is to win somebody to a church who was not one in it or through it. Now, when I say in it, I mean actually in it or through its ministries. Now, you get people saved out on a bus route. They know you're representing Northside Baptist Church. They drive these buses. Everything that we have here is numbered, it's lettered, it's called, it's named Northside Baptist Church. Everything that we have. And we want people to know that we're identified with the church. And when we get them saved, we want them to come into the church. Now, you let somebody get saved out here in something else, in one of these so-called mass rallies at the auditorium or whatever it may be. And one of the most difficult things you'll find is trying to get them into the local church. I'm going to tell you something. Would you listen to me good? I want you to listen to me. Every Sunday or every month or whatever it is, Ernest Ainsley comes down to the Ovens Auditorium. He packs the place out. He takes out thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And I'm going to tell you exactly what was told to me. The man who was the, or is, uh, now he's been transferred, the managing editor of the Charlotte News. Uh, his name is Mr. Darrell Sifford. Darrell Sifford went down there to interview him. Now, Darrell Sifford has interviewed me. I've witnessed to him. And according to Darrell Sifford's testimony, he is not a born-again believer. He was interested. He was concerned. I witnessed to him. I talked to him. I asked him if he'd accept Christ as a Savior in the office at the old place. He was as interested. He asked me in the third person. He said, what would a person have to do to be born again? I knew what he was asking. And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, Mr. Sifford, here's what you have to do to be born again. And I gave him the ABC, so to speak. I took him down the Roman road. And I said, Mr. Sifford, have you ever been born again? Oh, no, he said, not, no, 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 not ready yet. Not ready yet. Not ready yet. Not ready yet. Now, Darrell Sifford went down and interviewed Ernest Ainsley. Ernest Ainsley, he said, fixed his ear where he could hear. Now, watch what I'm telling you. Darrell Sifford, here's what he said. Darrell Sifford said his wife got to going, and now everywhere that Ernest Ainsley goes, his wife is going and sitting on the second or the third seat. And he said, my wife and I are receiving a divorce, and I don't doubt at all, but that my wife, Darrell Sifford's wife, is going to marry Ernest Ainsley, the so-called faith healer. Now you say, well, what's so strange about that? 
I'm asking you if revival, if God-given, hog-killing revival leads a pastor to separate some people so he can marry his own wife. That's what John lost his head about. He said, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Amen. Now you figured out. Work on it in your mind a little bit. If that man has the power of God to heal people, why doesn't he go to Africa? Amen. I'll pay his way. I'll raise the money to pay his way to work among those lepers over there. I'll tell you why he doesn't go. There's no money over there. Now, brother, when a man of God will break up a home in order to get his money, he needs a, there needs to be a John the Baptist on the scene that cries out, even it means losing his head. We need a hog-killing revival. And brother, what we're seeing now in this so-called mass evangelism isn't doing it. Now, you take swing and swagger. Swing and swagger will come into the places and he'll sit there and moon and coon and goon and he's a good-looking fellow to start with and that helps anybody, I think, in the ministry. I have to work a lot harder because I don't have all those assets. But, and he'll sit there and sing and he has a voice. But what did God say do with your gift? Give it to the local church. He doesn't give his voice to the local church, does he? No, uh-uh. And as a result of it, brother, have you ever seen a hog-killing revival from those that mass meeting? Have you ever seen a place where, you know, the liquor stores are emptied and, and the people quit going to them and the massage parlors closed down because the, the girls got saved? Have you ever seen one of those? No. But all it is is a bunch of carnal-minded Christians that want to get blessed. I got where I don't like to use the word blessed because it's too close to being entertained. Bless God, their people got more zeal uh, when, when that rock and roll singer comes to town, you know, um, uh, Elvis Previs, P uh, Presley. They say that women 40 years old give 50, 75, 100 dollars for a ticket and they get up there and, oh, oh, oh. Now you know I'm telling the truth. And the rock and roll crowds come here with long hair and, and skinhead and not enough clothes on the blindfold of a gnat, and some of you, some of you give your children money to go to it, and they go over there and sit there amid the marijuana smoking, the pot smoking, and all the other dope, and all the other sex symbols, and sex sins, and everything else. Beloved, I'll be honest to you, I don't know if they don't accomplish about as much as some of these so-called mass evangelists. I'm going to tell you something. I'm naming names tonight because I, want you to, I don't want you to have to go home and get a dictionary and wonder who I'm talking about. Years ago in 1968, Bob Harrington was a friend of mine. I'm, I assume he still is. But Bob Harrington, I sat with him up at the uh, hotel. We were eating lunch. And Bob said to me, he said, from now on, I'm going to have to go citywide. I'm going to have to go citywide. I said, Bob, don't you do it. I said, Bob, don't you do it. I said, you stay with the local church. Bob went to some of the largest churches in America had some of the greatest crowds. Bob said, no, I, I want this mass evangelism. I think that's the answer to it. And Bob's gone mass. But I'll tell you what's happened to Bob. Bob's gone down the drain, folk. Now, I'm just being honest with you. Bob's gone down the drain. He's sold out. I couldn't have Bob back in our church again. I thank the Lord for Bob... Harrington in 1968, I thank God for him. I thank him for the converts we had, and I thank, him, thank God for, the, for whatever he may have done for our church. But we're not talking about the same person then as we're talking about now. Mass evangelism, you, you better watch it. Now, you see, I believe that the local church is a center of evangelism. 
I believe that's where it has to be done. And I believe if it isn't done through that, then we're, then we're saying, well, uh, it's like sending somebody else to the doctor for you. It's the church that has to be revived. It's the church that needs its people set on fire of God. It's the church that needs to reach out then and evangelize people and bring them in where everything is going. Now, you see, evangelism, as I've said, is not revival. Winning the lost is evangelism, you see. But Christians getting right with God and Christians getting right with each other, that's revival in the church. That's not evangelism. You see, when you see the church attendance, and we see across America, oh, the church attendance is at an all-time high. And now before you jump up and down and start saying, praise the Lord, uh, look what all it's doing. The church attendance is at an all-time high. Brother, the moral problem is at an all-time high. The crime problem is at an all-time high. The illegitimacy rate is at an all-time high. Dope addicts, as we've never had them before. Children disobedient to their parents. For the first time, we got a high mark in, in, uh, in divorce rates. For the first time in America, one million divorces in 12 months. And brother, when you break it all down to that and begin to come back in and analyzing it, you can't, be, you can't make it synonymous with a high rate of membership, with a high rate of immorality, and a high rate of divorce, and a high rate of breakdowns of the homes, and a high rate of crime. They don't equate somewhere. Something is wrong in the church. Something is wrong in the churches across America. The problem is we don't really understand what a hog-killing revival really is, and therefore we don't even know how to pray. Many times when we say, Lord, send us revival, we'll read it, Lord, send us some good entertainment, and Lord, send us something where we can sit and fold our hands and not have to do anything. Now, then again, one of the things that we have is a wave of church activity. Oh, our churches are busy little bees today, aren't we? We've got every kind of little group and every kind of little, you know, we've got the, uh, the uh, BTU and the WMU and the, and the BYPU and the, and the woman's auxiliary and the ladies' auxiliaries and the teen auxiliary and the RAs and the GAs and the bumblebees and the, and the, the do-don'ts and the don't-do's. And, I mean, we got, it, we got it all figured out. We've got it organized. And what we have today is nothing in the world but organized religious activity and there's very little of the Holy Spirit of God really in it all. You see, church activity, sometimes we confuse again church members and buildings and money and missions and evangelism. And we equate that with revival, but beloved, it really isn't. You see, when, when you have revival, and I'm not to that point yet, but when we, get, when we have revival, you'll find that there's a standard of conduct. Something happens to a church when you begin to have a hog-killing revival. Look in your Bible for a minute to the book of Acts, chapter number 5. Acts chapter 5. And you'll see a church there that began to do what God wanted it to do. And this is to be our pattern. Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of it. I'll not read it all. But I want you to know, brother, there was a... Now, you, well, let me read it all. I think it's worthwhile. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of it, the price, kept back part of the price, his wife also being private or part of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? 
while it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why then has Satan, why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. In other words, he died, brother. He hit the floor dead. Now, it wasn't that he didn't give a certain amount. That doesn't have anything to do with it. It's that rather he stood up and said, we sold a farm for $50,000 and we're going to give 30, or, or, or rather he said, they sold it for 50,000. I'm just making up a figure. They sold a farm for 50,000. They came and said, we sold a farm for $30,000 and we're giving it all to the Lord. Pick him up, fellas, and carrying him out. He's lied to the Holy Ghost. Now, what happened? Great fear. Now, the Lord didn't say, doesn't use great. How shall we accept if we neglect so great salvation? And brother, when God uses the word great, it means it, means it was great. And a great fear came upon the people. It means a fear, a trust, a reverential trust and respect of the Lord. Now, a little later, his wife came back. She told the same lie. And as a result of it, she hit the floor dead. Verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Brother, and look down at verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes of men and women. Now you show me in some of this mass evangelism, show me in all these little gimmicks that are going on, these so-called concerts and these rock and roll gospel singers and, and these healing things. And You show me where great fear and to the multitudes were added to the believers. They meant added to the church. Isn't that what it's talking about? Following on over in the, in the fourth chapter, and it said the Lord added, it's a second chapter, and the Lord added to the church daily, said you should be saved. And it all the way over, and it says, and added to the church, and added to the church. And believers were added to the, it was multiplied now because of the belief and fear of God. Now, if you're going to have a hog-killing revival, the first thing we must do, we must put Christ in his rightful place. I'm going to tell you what's brought this in. It's this thing of humanizing the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that we want an image. You see, we haven't had a, we haven't had a leader in a long time. And I'm not in politics. That's not what I'm talking about. We haven't had a leader. We haven't had someone that we can look to. You go through the Old Testament, you'll find leaders. You'll find Moses as he led the children of Israel. Abraham has led his families and those that are around him. Moses later. And you'll see these great men of God. Then you see Joshua coming on the scene. Later Caleb. And you see these men of God, great leaders. And the people looked up and respected them and followed them. Now in our government, we haven't had the great leaders that we look to in a long, long time. I doubt personally that we ever will again. But I am saying this, they need a leader. And so people are making them a leader. So they reach over in essence and they say, now let's take a little bit of the Lord Jesus and let's take a little bit of what we're missing here in the world, kind of the father image, and we'll put them together. And what you come up with is a long-haired, bearded Jesus in a dirty t-shirt standing there with his fingers pointing like that saying, peace, everything's all right. Now, if I sound sacrilegious, I'm merely describing what this world and what these Jesus freaks and what these modern-day churches have done. Now, here's their problem, and here's the problem that you'll have if you're not careful. Don't follow the Galilean teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't put him in that setting. That's what I'm trying to say. 
Now, I'm glad that we have his life. I'm glad that we can follow it. I'm glad it's depicted so clearly. I can find what the Lord does in any given situation and so on. I'm glad it's that. But I cannot now follow. I cannot think of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the lowly Nazarene. I cannot think of him as being the one who humbled himself and took upon him the form of a man. I can't think of him anymore as a sheep as before her shearers is dumb, dumb, so he opened not his mouth. I can't think of him anymore as a lamb of God. It's a beautiful picture. It's a perfect picture. It's a true picture. And it's so wonderful that our minds can never really grasp it all. But we cannot put Jesus. We cannot look. And, you know, when we have the nativity scenes, we have a picture of the little baby Jesus. And many times children think the Lord Jesus Christ is a little baby born in a manger. And their hearts feel so sorry because he didn't have a nice little, um, you know, bathinet and, and a playpen and things of that sort. And to be honest with you, their little childish hearts, that is about as all they know. That's about as far as they can go. Others think of the Lord Jesus Christ growing up and lonely and not really not having a lot of playmates. And when he got older, because he was a little different from everybody else, he didn't have the personal friendship and he didn't know how to play baseball, they said. And then they follow the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. And there they say he is a martyr who died for what he believed. Oh, what a life. We ought to, we ought to pattern our lives after the Lord Jesus Christ. But beloved, I want you to know to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this age, that is not a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ today. All that's true. It's there. But that is not a picture of Jesus Christ today. Do you want to know what Jesus Christ looks like today? Turn in your Bible to the book of Revelations chapter 1. To the book of the Revelations chapter 1. Look at verse number 12. <clears throat> Revelations chapter 1, last book in your Bible, verse number 1. And I turned to see the voice that spake unto me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair were white as like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sounds of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, literally, and when I saw him like that, I fell at his feet as dead. Now you stop there a minute. Boy, you know, we covered this in our prayer. When we were studying on prayer several months ago, this thing of going into the presence of the Lord, going in yawning with visions of Johnny Carson racing in her head, chewing bubble gum or burping, and we'd drop off to sleep. Brother, you are not in the presence of the Lord when you do that. The Bible says Peter, when he saw, he said he saw the Lord. And when he saw him, the Bible says that he put on his clothes and he said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. Isaiah and I uh, are, uh, yes, I, in Isaiah 6, the word of God says this, and in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and mighty and lifted up. And he goes on and tells us about the seraphims and how they sang holy, holy, holy. And they said it's allowed it till the very foundation of the temple would shake and the place was filled with smoke. Brother, you don't go into the presence of a deity like that, like these fellows are saying now, Jesus. Let me pause there long enough to say this. Young boy came up this morning to me and said something that condemned me. He said, Pastor, what are we doing 
to boycott the showing of Jesus Christ Superstar on Channel 9. I want to tell you folks something. You ought to make that as off limits as a rattlesnake in your house. That's the most blasphemous thing that has ever come out of hell itself. It lowrates Jesus Christ, makes him married to Mary Magdalene. It's ungodly, it's unscriptural, it's blasphemous. Brother, I'll tell you right now, anybody that's ever been in his presence one time could not listen to the blasphemous songs and I don't care what the advertising is. I wonder if it wouldn't be wise if every member of Northside Baptist Church would write to Channel 9 and say, we will not watch your station all day long the day you show it. I wonder if it isn't time somebody stood up and in essence began a hog-killing revival because when you have revival, something happens. You don't sit back and wish and hope. You do something about it. Now watch. You put Christ in his rightful place when you have revival. Christ becomes the head of the church. Christ becomes the head of the home. Christ becomes the head of the man and the head of the woman. It's Christ first. You know, they have a saying in missions, and I think it's wonderful, because obviously they, they assume, but, the, but I wish they'd put the other first. They'll say, unless a man has a compassion for souls, he'll never make a missionary. A man will never have a compassion for souls, and first, first of all, he has a compassion for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord Jesus Christ is first in his life, he automatically has a longing for souls. He has a longing for faithfulness. He has a longing for righteousness. He has a longing for giving. He has these things when, first of all, he's right with the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ is the Lord of his life. You see, that's the problem. Well, I don't care what your problem is now or my problem. We only have one problem when you boil it down to it. There's only one problem, is that Jesus is not the Lord of our lives. And the Lord that's depicted here in the Revelation is not Jesus Christ's superstar. He's not a superstar, folks. He's the one who made the stars. There's a world of difference. Joe Namath is a superstar. Hank Aaron is a superstar. O.J. Simpson is a superstar. But Jesus Christ is not a superstar because he'd be on their level. He again is the bright and the morning star, the fairest of 10,000. And until he comes back to that place in our churches, we'll never have revival. And when you have revival, you can find that because Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of our lives. He is the head of the program. He is the preeminent one in any and everything that we do. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And so the thing you have to understand, you see, you look at him as the Galilean teacher, you must remember since that time he had an experience on Calvary's cross. And as Stuart Hamlin said many years ago, each drop of blood bought me a million years. Since that time as a Galilean teacher, you see, he's experienced the resurrection. And since that time, there's been a Pentecost. And since that time, there's been then the formation of the church. And he says, upon this truth, I will build my church and gave the commission to men to build his church. It's a continuing process, never ending. Then there's another thing, not only put Christ in his rightful place, but you must put the word of God in its rightful place. Now, I want you to look with me a minute to the book of Acts chapter 19. 
And I want you to see a church, the ideal church, where real revival was experienced. Revival began in the church at Ephesus here in chapter 19. Look at verse number 8. And he, that, that is Acts now chapter 19, and he, that is Paul, went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers or different ones were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of the way before the multitudes, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannius, and this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jew and Greek. Now, I want you to notice something here, if you will. The Bible says, the first thing, anytime you put the word of God in its rightful place. Now, will you please listen? Will you listen with both ears? Will you listen with your heart? Will you remember what the Holy Spirit is saying? I pray through me tonight. Listen to me. When you put the word of God in its rightful place, you're going to have some opposition. I don't care who you are, I care where you live, I don't care what you think about it. When you put the Word of God, when you put Christ first, the Word of God in its rightful place, you're going to have opposition. It came to this church, and the same way that it came to this church, it'll come to you, it'll come to me, come to this church. I want you to watch it. First of all, there was a hardening of the heart. Notice in chapter 20 and verse number 21, if you will. Chapter 20 and verse number 21. Now, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, uh, let's, look, let's look at chapter 19 and verse number 9. And when divers or different ones were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitudes. Now I want you to notice what had happened. Here was God given, here was hog killing revival coming into the church. And the same sun that hardens mud will melt grease or ice or whatever. It's the same thing. Now the word of God will do the same thing. Now I want you to watch to me. Listen to me. I believe if God would give a God-given revival of this church, I believe we'd lose some members. I really believe that. I believe we'd have people says, I don't like that. I don't like it. It happened here, and I'll guarantee you one thing. When you preach the word of the unsearchable riches of the word of God, you're going to have some people that don't like it. They're not going to believe it. Their hearts are going to be hardened. And I'm aware of it every time I preach that it's doing one of the two things. It's drawing people closer to the Lord Jesus Christ or pushing them far away, further away. You don't stand still in this thing of the Lord. You're either near him or you're further away than you even were this morning. One of the two. Right now, you, you've made that decision through the day to get closer to the Lord or to get further away from him. You may not have made a conscious decision in it, but the way that you act, the way that you respond. And the people didn't like it. That's what I'm saying. And some of them got mad. And some of them left the church. But notice what it said they did before them. And uh, it says, and spake boldly, let's see, but spake evil of that way before the multitudes. In other words, they'd get around church members and say, they spoke evil of that way. Now that way was a, was a slanderous way, and it was used in Acts 9, you remember. And it said, Paul went down to persecute those Christians that were in Damascus, any that were any and all that were in that way. In other words, any of them that were trusting Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior. And these people stood up and criticized the people that were trying to do right. Now, I'm saying this, when you put the Word of God in its rightful place, don't you feel for one second that you're not going to be criticized, but that's one way to find out if you're going right. That's one way. Secondly, I want you to know that you'll find the imitators. Now, look in chapter 19, verse number 13 through 17. The imitators. 
Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, like to beat them to death. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also with an Ephesus, and great and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ were magnified. You'll find the imitators, as I say again, the devil's cheap weapon is counterfeiting, and he'll use the imitators. They'll come around and they'll say, oh, well, after all, I don't believe it's necessary to take a stand and take standards and stand against wrong living and so on like that. Then the thing that you need to understand, there's an opposition. You'll have opposition by the devil's crowd. You'll always do it. Look now the following there in chapter 19. Look at verse 23. And the same time, now because of this hog-killing revival, there arose no small stir about that way. Here, that way again, I almost put it in quotation, the Christian way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, uh, which made uh, silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. And when he called them together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, but which are made with hands, so that not only is our craft in danger to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard these saying, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now watch what happened. There was a meteorite fell, and it was a great big black hideous looking thing, and they thought it must be a god, and so they built a shrine around it. And after a while, people said, well, these religious fanatic people, they're weak, they're simple-minded, they're ignorant and uneducated, so we may as well do something. So one of the servicemen said, why don't we make a little shrine and sell it to them? They, they're gullible. They'll buy them. They hadn't got good sense anyway. And so they started making little silver shrines, and they sold them, and Finally, they got together problem. They said, well, we're charging too little. Why, well, these things become single. People got them in home worshiping. They said, man, we've got a good thing. They hired them extra people, and they started turning those things out nearly on the production line. And they were selling those little shrines. Well, Paul came and preached the gospel. Paul had a hog-killing revival. And as a result of it, these people said, wait a minute, Paul, explain this thing to us. And Paul said, well, you don't need a little shrine. You don't need a little image there on your dashboard to keep you safe. You don't need some aid to worship. What you need to do now, there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. You can pray directly to the Lord himself. You can pray. He is our high priest. You have a high priest in heaven. And you can call them who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, it tells us in the book of Hebrew. So these people started praying. They'd go down the street and they'd see some of those little things cast down on the street. They didn't need them anymore. And these fellows got worried. Now, watch what I'm saying. Brother, any time you have a hog-killing revival, it'll affect the world's people. Did you know? It'll affect a liquor crowd. It'll affect a movie crowd. It'll affect the pornography book crowd. It'll, it'll affect, and you keep on down the line, it's going to affect them. And brother, they don't like it. My wife and I, not long ago, it was very rare, she, she kind of she wounded me uh, uh, emotionally the other night. I mean, it was pretty severe. I'd been preaching on husbands, take your wives out for dinner, and I, I, I do that religiously, really, once a week, up until lately. And because I've been traveling so much, I've been 
So we sat down. She had a beautiful dinner prepared, and I said, my, this is so nice. And she said, it's just like going out in a restaurant kind, isn't it? I said, it, oh, it's better. You know how you put it, yes, better, you know, everything. She said, you know, I can remember even when we used to go out. Oh, oh that hurt, you know. She said, I can remember it. It's not bad. I can remember it even when we went out. Well, the thing that you have to understand, uh, sometimes we can remember those things and sometimes we have to get them on and, uh, and so on like that. But now, I want you to, we, we went out one time. This was back when one of the times she remembered, I guess, and I said, come on, been a long time. I'm going to take you out to a nice place. And we went to a place which, which shall obviously remain nameless. And it was, we go early so we won't get there with the crowds. And so we must have been 5.30, maybe 6 o'clock. But that's early for that other crowd. And so we got there, the two of us, and we walked in. And it was an elderly lady, obviously owned it and ran it. You could tell the way she snapped her fingers and gave orders to everybody, you know. And so we walked in. And the, oh, how are you? And her, it froze. She recognized me. Now, that's not good or bad or indifferent. I mean, you know, I thought, well, all right. And she looked at me again. And I could see it in her eyes because I know who had put up money to fight liquor by the drink. You know, I was one of the proponents of doing away with liquor by the drinks and so on. She recognized me. She knew that she had lost profit because she had a bar room over there that was closed down for all practical purposes. They used it for little things, but there it was, ready to go with the little guy. You know, the little bottles that they want to put in there. She eyeballed me a minute and her eyes got icy cold and she said, come this way. And she took us over into the corner and put us back in there. And it was so little that I saw a rat running across the floor and it was humped back. Just, you know. <laughs> I said, ma'am, could we not have a little better place than this? I said, it was so crowded here. I just can't get in. She said, come this way. She took me over to another place. It was a little bit better. At least the rats running by there were straightened out. So we sat down there. And it was cool. Now, all I'm saying is they remembered it. There's a lot of times people remember these things. And don't you ever forget that Northside Baptist Church will always be remembered. I, I noticed in the preliminaries, the primaries, I should say, the primaries of the Republican nominee for the gubernatorial candidate for North Carolina, Reverend Coit Privet, ran. And they said one of the reasons that political analysis, because he had taken a stand against liquor by the drink, and the liquor crowd, the, the uh, a restaurant crowd as a whole, uh, took their stand against him also. Now, I'm saying this, brother, when you have a hog-killing revival, when you take a stand for God in your life, you may as well. Now, I want you to notice this. The devil's crowd's going to take a stand against you. They're going to fight you on every hand. They want to make money. They don't care who it corrupts. They don't care uh, whose boy, whose girl loses their virtue, who loses their character, and maybe spend the rest of their life in jail. They simply do not care. Pastor told me the other day, I thought then, I said, thank God for somebody that's got the courage to do it. I've always wanted to do it, never, I guess, had the courage. He said, a lady called him and she said, sir, I don't come to your church, but I need some help. I got to have some groceries. And he said, ma'am, where do you go to church? Well, I hadn't been going since I moved here. Hadn't found a church yet that I like. How long have you been living here? Fifteen years. He said, uh, ma'am, you're, you're drinking, aren't you? She said, sir, I'll have you to know I'm not drinking. No, he says, I'll take it back. You're not drinking. You're drunk, aren't you? Well, she said, I have had a drink or two. He said, ma'am, why don't you call the tavern where you buy your liquor and let them buy you some grocers? Click. Now, you said, Brother Hudson, that's not kind. But it sure is true, isn't it? 
I want to tell you something, brother. You can go down and spend every dollar you got at some liquor place, at some beer joint, and you can die, your children can die, your, your wife can die, and they won't even send you a bouquet of flowers. You can starve to death, and they couldn't care less. You go down to one of their places and say, look, my husband has spent his life, he's poured out his manhood, his character, his self-respect he's poured out here. And now he's in need. He needs some money. They'll say, I'm sorry, ma'am. We don't have anything to give him. You go down at these hell holes called movies and put your money on there in the guise of entertainment. Go in and say, oh, well, I just wanted to see what one of those X-rated movies were like. And you go in there and put your money in there. Then you get in need and walk up to the man who owns it and say, listen, we put our money in these X-rated movies. We put our monies in these ungodly films. And mister, we need some help. He said, get out of here. If you don't have whatever it costs to get in, I'm not concerned about you. David summed it up in Psalms 142. He said, I looked on my right hand, I looked on my left, and no man cared for my soul. Men don't care anything about you. You may as well make it up. And when you take a stand and when you begin to pray for revival, you better remember this. It's going to mean there's some hog-killing time coming in your life and people are not going to like you. Brother, you better remember. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ, a lot of people says, oh, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the reason I don't put that much trust in this charismatic movement. I wouldn't trust them that far. When I shake hands with them, I count my fingers, brother. I'm being honest. And if you are one, I'm still saying it. Let me know when you come up so I'll be sure to count my fingers. I'm going to tell you why. Brother, I read in the book of Matthew chapter 4, and I read where the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and the Holy Spirit of the living God came upon him in the form of a dove. There was a God, the Son, in the water, and the Holy Spirit of the living God coming upon him in the form of a dove. And the voice from heaven spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Now watch what happened. He didn't begin to shout. He didn't begin to talk in tongues. He didn't let his hair grow long and run around out here holding up two fingers and saying, peace. No. The Bible says, and immediately he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And for 40 days and nights, he fought hell itself. Brother, you better be sure that you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit before you ask the Lord to fill you. God doesn't fill you for show. God doesn't feel you to sit in the backside of some restaurant on Sunday night bragging on your experience. Jesus feels you for service. Jesus feels you to do something for God and to stay at it and to stay at it. And then when you're tired, still stay at it. That's why God fills you with the Holy Spirit. He gives you an all-consuming passion for soul and for doing his work so that the only hope that you got, brother, God bless you when everybody hits you with everything they can. To the end of it, you'll be able to lift up your head unworthy as you are and say, Lord, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. That's the only hope a Christian's got. It's the only thing he wants, just to be pleasing to the Lord. You can't go out here and straddle the fence. All you'll get saddle swords. You can't do it. You've got to get on one side or the other. I think that statement there in the, in the book of 1 Kings is the wisest thing I've heard. He, he said, um, um, whose side are you on? He said, if Baal, then serve him. But if God, then serve him. Make up your mind, do one or the other. How long halt you between two opinions? If God be God, serve him. But if Baal be God, serve him. And the people answered him not a word. They saw something and then they said, we, we're going to serve him. We, we believe that he's God now. 
Then first you put Christ in his rightful place, then you put the word of God in its rightful place, and then you put ourselves, put ourselves, I didn't say you now, I said ourselves in our rightful place. You see, the problem that happened to this great church at Ephesus, you see they brought their books and burned them, uh, 30,000 pieces of silver, about $10,000 today. And as a result of it, when they did all this, they, they were right with God. The Bible says they went out with Paul and they visited in Acts 20 20 and how I kept back nothing that was profitable to you, but I have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. This was probably the most spiritual church that the Bible records. And yet there was something happened to it. And over and we'll not turn there, but in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, the Lord said, I want to thank you for doing some things, and he named the things that they did, how thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and how thou hast tried them which are prophets and are not, and how hast found them to be liars. I want to thank you for all that. But he said, Nevertheless, I am somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You see, our rightful place is to put Jesus Christ on the throne in our heart. Our, our rightful place is to see that Jesus Christ is above anything else, above anything else, above anything else, that Jesus Christ is right in our minds, in our life. He must be Lord. If he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. Now let me ask you a searching question. No, let me ask the Holy Spirit if he would direct the thought to your heart. Is there anything in your life that isn't yet dedicated to the Lord? Is it your life, your marriage, your children, your husband or wife? Are they really given over to the Lord? Have you put them second place to the Lord Jesus? What about your business, your car, your recreation, your money, your, your accumulated interest of the world's good? Does it really belong to Jesus Christ? Does it really? What is it that you haven't yet made him Lord of? And if he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. If there's anything you haven't yet given to the Lord Jesus Christ, anything that you'd have to hold back from him, then he isn't Lord of your life at this time. Now, if you're going to have revival, that's where it begins. The second thing is you've got to learn to hate sin. I'm going to turn Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to read from the Word of God. I, we've, we've gotten this thing. We're caught up now with this in between the fundamentalism, as it's so-called, and, and the things of these, these uh, hippies that are, and when I say them, I'm not just condemning them, but I'm saying the, the carnal-minded Christian, the liberal and the modernist and everything else. So verse number 12 in, in Matthew chapter 24, and here's what it says. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now I want you to notice something. Notice first what it didn't say. Because iniquity, that's sin, because sin, I'm going to say that so you'll understand it. Because sin shall abound, not the zeal of many shall wax cold. We're seeing the zeal, aren't we? Activity, people doing things, not the zeal. It didn't even say the giving of many shall wax cold. People are still giving to some degree. The Christians are giving. Didn't say the giving. Didn't say the going. It said the loving will wax cold. Because sin is abounding, that is, sin is growing, the love of my people, God says, is going to diminish. 
I'll read it again. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Not cool off, but turn cold. Nevertheless, I'm somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. As I've said many times, it's not lost. I've heard that. I guess I've lost my first love, brother. Said, no, you haven't lost it. You've transferred it from the Lord Jesus Christ to yourself, to your possessions, to what you've accomplished, to you going down the line and name it. It's not the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's first, you have to learn to hate sin. We're living in a day when righteousness, people are almost laughed at for being righteous, for living right, for not watching things on television, not reading books, not talking about subjects, not talking about intimate details in people's lives that may be common knowledge. They just don't talk about them because they have a righteous heart. And you'll be laughed at and called names and looked down upon. Sometimes the boys and girls in our school, even by other boys and girls in our school, are called Northsiders or other names, meaning that. Because they've taken a stand for Jesus Christ. Even in a Christian school, sometimes they're criticized. They call self-righteous, pious, and they're called many other things. Beloved, God says, I want you to understand that because sin shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold shall wax cold. Then the thing that we have to do is follow righteousness. If we're going to have a hog-killing revival, we're going to have to follow righteousness. The Bible says righteousness without which a man cannot see God. And I'll be honest with you, I think it's today, I think there's been too little preaching on righteous living. I think there's been too much preaching on maybe kind of enjoy yourself, be tolerant, be kind, be forgiving one to another. Let everybody else make their own decision. Let them tolerate over there. I think those days are over. There is in my heart. That's the reason I felt tonight that I needed to say these names. It's not that I'm against those men. I'm praying for them. It's just that I feel, according to the Word of God, that these people have departed from what God has taught. And I think it's wrong because they've departed from the church of Jesus Christ. That's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong according to the Word of God. And don't ever feel that you're going to get big enough and don't ever feel that you're going to get gifted enough to where someday you can depart from the church and go out and share your great blessings. Brother, you watch it. You'll nosedive and you'll go down the drain. God wants any and everything done through the local church. Now I've preached the message on hog-killing revival and I've said nothing about my text. And I'm not going to preach it. I'm just going to sum it up. When the Lord Jesus went in, here were these men. They were in the tombs. They were in the cemetery. I almost think about alcoholics living in there that wore no clothes. It says another gospel. And the Lord Jesus came along, and here came these poor, demented, poor, broken men. And the Lord called, the, the demons in them were doing the talking. And they said, Art thou come to torment us before our time? And the Lord said, um, in one place, he said, what is thy name? He said, our name is Legion, for we are many, possessed of many demons. And folk, don't think that's old fanaticism. Don't think that's old-fashioned. Don't think that's superstition. That's still true today. There are a lot more people today possessed of demons than most of you are willing to believe. All right, now I'm going to say this. The Lord Jesus Christ cast them out into a herd of swine. Now, in essence, we've heard this briefly through in my entire message. 
These hogs, rather than be filled with a demon, they just did what any decent person ought to do. They just cast themselves in the sea and drowned themselves. Choked to death, as it says in another place. Drowned. Killed himself. Now, here's what I'm saying. The first thing that happened, the men that took care of these things ran back into the city. Now, the strange thing about it, Jews wouldn't have anything to do with hogs. But they thought if they could make some money on it, they'd do it anyway. So they'd hire Gentiles to operate them and they'd stay removed. And so when they went back into the town and told these Jews, they said, wow, there's a man out there and he cast some demons in, my, in our hogs and they ran into the sea and were drowned. And they came out there rather than saying, Lord Jesus, oh my, we're so glad we've seen these two men. We're so glad, look at them over there. Uh, maybe they'd gone home, maybe their families had come and they were rejoicing and hugging and kissing and, and uh, they, didn't, they weren't glad over that. You know what they were sorry about? They had lost their investment in hogs. They didn't say, Lord, it's all right. We can get some more hogs. Oh, we're so glad. Lord, why don't you come over to our house and preach to us and tell us about yourself? Lord, maybe you need to have a little meeting here with our hands here, the, the workmen. Maybe you'd like to tell them about the things of God. Maybe you'd like to have a revival. No. They said, and they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. They said, would you please leave? We don't want you around here. Now, folk, when you have a revival, when you pray for God to give revival, you're first of all saying, Lord, what I'm really saying is we need repentance. We need a change in our attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ, a change in our attitude towards the Bible, a change in our attitude towards sin so that we can apply it to our own self. It makes you a different person. You see things in a new light. You understand them in a different way. When God gives revival, but you remember when you have a hog-killing revival, the world, the merchants are going to take their stand against you. But God will give you such peace and happiness. Now, I don't know where you think so or not. They said, you get out of this place. And the Lord said, all right, I'll go, fellas. It's okay, I'll go. And he turned around, if you want to know his reward. I, I've often thought maybe he saw those two fellas. Maybe their wives and children had got him and little old boy and girl hanging on each leg, hugging his leg. And he had his big old brawny arm around his wife. And she'd said, honey, I... I never thought this would happen. He said, well, honey, you see, I met Jesus. And, oh, and he'd tell her all the way. And she'd say, tell me again. And the little children look up and said, Daddy, are you really coming home? Daddy, are you going to beat Mama anymore? And the Lord Jesus heard that. And he said, bless God, it's far better if these men would hate me, even if they'd stone me, even if they'd kill me. That's more reward than I've ever deserved right there. See him walked off. I close with this little simple illustration. Years ago, up in the hills of Tennessee, I remember a great big old mountaineer got saved. Another preacher, I didn't, another preacher was baptizing him, and he had on overalls, you know, overhauls as they called them, had on a bib up here, had a bib up here at the front, great big old pockets, and he's a great big old tall mountain. I guess he was 6'3 and slender, maybe weighed 180 pounds or so, and he'd been, he'd left his family and home, had several boys, I guess, up there, and they'd heard about it, and they came, and they stood there and watched their dad as he, as the preacher put him down, in that little old creek, got him down, got him all him underneath the water and brought him back up. His pockets filled up with water. And you know how they bulged out and the water was draining out of his pockets and this bib was full and water was freaking out. And that old man lifted up his, brother, don't, I'll, I'll, I'll stand behind this. I'll, I'll stand right with God on what I'm saying. That old man shouted just a little bit, glory to God. He said, thank you, Lord. And I stood there and said, thank you, God. You put a shout in his soul. Now we'll forget one of those old, little barefooted boy, looked like 10 or 12 years old, just a typical little mountain boy raised on the farm. He was barefooted and his feet was just as tough as they could be and his toes turned up a little bit. And he walked over and he said, you coming home with us, Paul? Yeah, he said, son, I'm coming home. 
And with that water dripping out of his overalls, that great big old mountaineer started walking off. And I stood there then, and I said, Lord, I've seen a lot of things in this world, but I've never seen anything that blesses my soul like that. I never have. And I'll tell you, folks, there is nothing like a hog-killing revival. There's nothing like seeing men and women, I mean really getting right. I don't mean getting religion or joining the church. I'm talking about getting born again of the Spirit of God. Oh, we need a hog-killing revival. We thank you for listening to the Making Much of Jesus podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen. And join us next time for the Making Much of Jesus podcast podcast.